Welcome to the special edition of On The Whistle. The coronavirus has affected the entire world, including this podcast. So we are giving you an edition where we're all meeting virtually over our computers. I have the mighty Maulers, former Premier Soccer League defender, Courtney Fries joining us. Uh, he is in the buzzing metropolis of Essex in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Courtney, what's life like there? Life is just... Um... We're just in lockdown and respectfully doing what we've been asked to do. Um, in my profession currently at the moment, we are at school, yet not at school. The school system from what we know is different now. We are a, we basically just babysit children during the day and keep them active with some activity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of virtual learning going on, which we support families with and vulnerable families with free school meals. Um, yeah. It's simple, but it is, it's something that has to be consistent during this period. Courtney, doing absolutely wonderful work as a key worker. We're so grateful for that. Joining me in London is North African football expert, Ahmed Youssef. Ahmed, thank you for joining us today. Um, you've had some interesting news, actually, um, in recent weeks. Uh, do you want to bring our panellists just up to speed? Yes, I mean, I, uh, I was quite ill at the start of the... Um of the whole you know, lockdown uh, and I was kind of in isolation for a week, had every single symptom, obviously wasn't tested, but um, yeah, uh, a severe fever, um, high temperature, fatigue, coughing, um, and so, yeah, but, but thankfully I've, I've managed to recover, it took, it took a while, but yeah, all, all back to normal now and working from home, um, so, yeah, it's, it's a different dynamic to working from home. And sometimes feel you can't really ever switch off because you're constantly in a place where you're working. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's all better now. Yeah, I can relate with that. You get a lot of um, just conference calls um, and the same environment. To keep saying, I've, I've started to go out for long walks and also run. But similarly to you, like Ahmed, I was um, ill a couple of weeks ago. And at the time, I was never actually officially tested by... Um, by doctor or hospital, but I had bad, bad, bad fever. Um, I had um, a, a, a dry cough. And the worst thing ever for a big guy like me is to not have any taste in food. So I couldn't have any taste in my food and I couldn't figure out what was going on. So I said to my wife, you know what, just get the fish and chips from the chippy down the road because fish and chips in London, you can't beat it, right? So she comes back with this fish and chips and we're eating it. And I'm like, I'm putting more vinegar on. I'm throwing more salt on. I'm going, I can't taste anything. This is the blandest, worst fish in my life. We're not going back to these guys. And I looked at her and said, is this bland for you? And she went, yeah, it's bland. And I'm like, well, what do you mean it's bland? She went, well, it's always bland. I'm like, hang on a minute. Like, are you telling me you can't taste the fish? Because my wife is virtually vegan. So she doesn't really eat any meat. So I'm sitting here going, listen, does this taste like fish? And she goes, well, I've never thought it tastes like good fish. And I'm like, can you taste fish? Can you taste fish? Because I can't taste anything. So it ended up being this like back and forth when I realized that there was actually something wrong with me. <laughs> A lot of people had that um, the lack of taste. And there's all these videos of people drinking vinegar to prove it. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. And um, Francis, I joked about Courtney being in the most exotic buzzing metropolis of Gray's Essex, but you're actually on the continent. Where, where are you and what's going on? Um, I'm currently in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Um, yeah, I guess we are all living the new normal. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of time at home, a lot of hand washing. I think I'm actually changing color. 
maybe losing my melanin in my hands. But <laughs> an interesting experience. But I think um, over here, if there's anything we're learning more than I think maybe is general conversation, is people are a lot more positive in the sense that it's an opportunity for people to spend more time with family, mm-hmm. be a little bit more reflective, realign priorities. I, for one, I was forever in between planes and airports and moving, and mm. I kind of thought that was the only way things got done. And mm-hmm. when you sat in one place for seven, eight weeks, uh, and things continue to get done, you kind of realize that hey, cemeteries are full of people who thought the world was would be lost without them, and we are no different. So appreciate the time we have. Do the things you can, but don't think anything too particularly special about yourself. That is a really philosophical and wonderful way to begin the, begin the pod. So thank you for that. And I think that's the most important thing. And look, we know that the world will return to normality and we know that it will be a different place. But let's try use this time as positively as we can. So Francis is so articulately um, voiced earlier and look to take lessons going forward, right? Because we can all get wrapped up with career, with interests, but, um, and, and, and lose sight of what's valuable to us. Um, but when you're on this podcast, this is the most important thing, right? It sure is. Yeah. <laughs> you guys again. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why I pay you guys so much to do it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Honestly, I'm waiting for my check. I don't know. You may have sent it by pigeon. I don't know. Uh, Grace, Grace, the, 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 the post is slow in Grace. Um, <laughs> Let's bring it back to football. The entire world has been shut down because of this coronavirus, or most of the world. And um, that has affected football, as we all know. There are a few minor leagues that have been going in the Belarus, Nicaragua, Taiwan, and Tajikistan. Um, in Africa, we had Burundi, that, uh, the Burundi Premier League, that continued to, to go until this past weekend when a decision was made to cancel their competition. But it actually wasn't because of the coronavirus. It was because of an upcoming election and some of the stadia need to be used um, as venues for political rallies. Um, Burundi doesn't have many reported cases of coronavirus, so the government and the Football Federation were happy to continue. Um, Francis, I know you've been keeping an eye on this like like most of us. What did you make of uh, Burundi's decision to continue and what measures were in place to, to protect players? Well, Burundi was a unique case on the continent, I think. Uh, because uh, it, it, their decision to keep the league going caused some concern amongst certain people. But I think it was a very practical decision that they made. Um, I believe at the time when they initially decided to continue, they had something like three cases in the country. Yeah, um, that's right. Two of these cases had flown in from abroad, and there was only one local uh, mm-hmm case uh, patient and a decision was made but one of the things that they did which i think was actually quite interesting and good was they would check the temperature of fans coming in to the stadia uh they insisted that players don't do handshakes uh no touching during celebrations um even some sort of distancing even in the in at the stadia um and they didn't 
um, the numbers didn't increase, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. By the time they were stopping the league uh, on the 14th, just gone, um, I think the national cases were up to 10. Some people mm-hmm. say they also weren't particularly testing many to be mm-hmm. able to know whether or not the numbers were true or not. But I think in the atmosphere of the challenge that they had, they had chosen to use football as one of their unifying tools, uh, something that they could escape the general misery or challenges of, of daily life. Mm. Um, and some people have argued that um, even when you go back as far back as the Romans, um, opium of the masses has always been sports and entertainment. So sometimes even in great moments of distress, uh, things like sports can be used to alleviate concerns and fear. Um, and their argument was there is more fear because of what people don't know. And the mm-hmm. little signs that they had showed them that they didn't have as much of a risk as others. And it's yet to be proven that they were wrong in that decision till present. You mentioned earlier about CAF and how the leadership interpreted this. How do you think CAF has reacted to the coronavirus? Well, I think CAF, uh, the main thing with, with CAF is they're, they're a federated body, so to speak. So they speak for many moving pieces and they have tried to, to encourage the healthcare, uh, the sanitation side of affairs, the safe hands and washing hands campaign. They had a, mm-hmm. a group of, of players uh, former players who all came in. I know Roger Miller, Lua Lua, Yuf, uh, Fadiga, Enyama. They, this is really early on. They shot a mm-hmm. video encouraging people to wash hands. Um, mm-hmm. Quite early on, the local African uh, Cup of Nations, but the one for local players. So I think they're doing as best as they can at present. Um, it, it's a... It's a it's one of those things where everybody's learning on a daily basis. They were kind of waiting for the decisions to be made based upon this current situation. They didn't want to make a decision early on. So the final was postponed yesterday, the semi-final the week before, because they had a hope that there could have been games that were played. And I think Africa as a continent as a whole has, you know, if you look at the numbers, it's been less effective than a lot of the other continents. So mm-hmm. see why they didn't want to make a decision early on. Um, so, um, but yeah, they've not given any set dates, but at least the, you know, the clubs now that have to worry about playing those the semi-final at the start of May and the finals in, in the end of May. Mm-hmm. And we know none of CAF's 54 members are playing any football at the moment. There's no domestic competitions going on. Um, Ahmed, how has the virus impacted North Africa? And um, we know that their clubs have been particularly, um, you know, performed amazingly in the African Champions League, all four semi-finals of that tournament coming from that part of the world. What's the impact been um, up in the north? Yeah, so as I said, kind of been a good year. I think, you know, two the two cities, Cairo, Fahli and Zemelik, and then uh, Raja and Wired Casablanca, the, you know, four clubs in the semi-finals. Um, and, and both their leagues obviously postponed. Um, if, if you kind of look at the actual clubs themselves, they are quite big clubs. So I think from a financial perspective, they all, you know, they've got a lot of funding, a lot of backing. Mm-hmm. Um, large number of fans, um, they might not kind of be that affected by this crisis you know, compared to a lot of the smaller clubs in, in those leagues and even a lot of the lower leagues in North Africa. Um, for example, in, in Egypt, they've um, set up a, a 
the Egyptian FA have set up a fund for the clubs that are in the third and fourth divisions, and they've asked every other you know, club in the, in the top top two divisions to kind of donate money to this fund, to be able to pay the players' wages because a lot of those players, players in the lower divisions, aren't getting paid. Um, mm-hmm. It's going kind to of similar issues are going to be going throughout all of Africa, really. Um, I guess in terms of training that these clubs are going through, um, there's a lot of online video trainings going on. Um, there's a lot of famous personal trainers who are doing these one-to-one sessions with the players, and I think the players are keeping fit as much as they can. Um, probably, this is probably the best question to ask Courtney, really, is you know, how, as a player, how can you train on your own? Is, it, is there a big difference, really, from training as a team to training on your own? Thanks, Ahmed. Um, the, the people I've spoken to and, and um, who have given me the insight into what is currently happening is it, it, there's a lot of personal training. The trainers, the, the players at the moment use a lot of high-intensity training. Uh, they have to watch their weight level hugely. And also the, the, the clubs, and I'm talking about the better clubs, for example, Sundowns, have looked at diets that the players should be on so that the weight doesn't regulate between more than two kilograms during this period. They don't pick up more weight than that. There's a lot of individual training that also happens, as you know. Uh, a lot of the players, the coach was telling me, don't have large yards where they can go out into the backyard. They live in condominiums. So it, it has to be the high intensity. It has to be um, things. It, the term he used was active rest, where they are recuperating, but not overtraining, where they will peak beyond. That's what he was looking at, uh, talking about a lot. A lot of reaction ex- exercises as well. Um, and th- that's as, as detailed as it could be. He said the most important thing during this time is that the players rest, don't lose too much muscle mass. And because there's no time limit on it, and I'm talking about South Africa in general, because the government has taken such a strong, firm stance on coronavirus. Like, I don't know another country, and I may be wrong, I hope someone can correct me, where the army is already on the ground enforcing the law. Of, of the government. Uh, so players are not allowed to go out. The the For my example, like my wife and I went out for a 23-minute run this morning. Sorry, I'm being accurate. It's on my watch. Wait, that is an incredible accurate number, 23 minutes. Yeah, well, <laughs> actually, I'm not lying. She did 22. <laughs> Francis and Ahmed, you might not realize this, but Courtney is obviously a former pro played in South Africa. But the true athlete of the Freeze household is his wife, who was a very good um, netball player, Courtney, correct me if I'm wrong, and also an athlete. And he has amassed more trophies in the trophy cabinet in the Freeze household. And one one year, Courtney was so upset because at his local football club in, um, in Grays, he won the Spirit Cup. He won the Spirit Cup. And for a former pro, that's not something you want. Uh, you know, I didn't even know a trophy like that existed. <laughs> Graham Sooner said, you got to put your trophies on the table. Well, <laughs> that one I'll keep off the table. Well, but, I'll just say to Graham Sooner, win the World Cup like Pogba did. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so so the, the coach I was speaking to spoke specific in terms of groups. He spoke about the goalkeepers, what mm. they're doing. He said, absolutely no diving or anything. A lot of core training 
a lot of high intensity, which is done through Zoom. So the club have provided the players with laptops, iPads, and the dongle so that they have internet. He said, well, some of the players, even though well-paid, are not able to access the internet where they're living. Um, And then, as I said, the term active rest is involved in that a lot and a lot of weight watching. Um, In regards to now the outfield players, two high-intensity sessions a day, um, a lot of diet moderations, and a lot of meetings individually with the coaches. Also, not just looking at the physical nature of the players, but as the mental well-being of the players as well. How they're getting along, how their family members are getting along. Because all these factors will affect performance and mood during this period. So it's not just managing the players' physicalness and those needs. Uh, besides that, he said, the, the, managers, the managers are keeping in touch with the players mm-hmm. on a well-being side. The coaches are looking, as I said, more at the diets and the training routines. Francis, I know you're in Cameroon at the moment. Um, and there's obviously been a shutdown of the league there. It's been the same across the continent uh, and across the globe, wherever the game has stopped. Um, speaking of fitness, uh, if I was to, to tie into what Courtney was just speaking about, uh, one of the clients of mine, uh, a player called Kristen Basogok, uh, plays with Cameroon team. Uh, his club is based in Henan in uh, China. Um, and they were due to resume. They, they'd done the polls in the league earlier than mm-hmm. the rest, but he traveled to Cameroon. So he finds himself here along with uh, other players who play in China because there's no uh, there are no flights between the spaces any which way. And so they're doing a lot of their training here. And on a daily basis, I speak with him two, three times just to see how he's going. But one of the things that the player was highlighting to me in a recent conversation is that as part of this new normal, it's almost the ability to see clubs engaging a lot more with the mental well-being of their talent at a distance, which is something in the game, I believe, for a long time because very often the relationship players had with their clubs was when they turned up at the training ground or got together to travel out for an away game or a home game. Mm-hmm. What happened in your home was very little, not importance, but a little concern to the club. And here you see a greater concern for understanding how spouses or how children or how parents are, the general well-being these people who are generally just assets of the club, but now I guess you get to see a, a lot more of a human side of the relationship. Uh, I think the point that Connie also made in terms of the longevity, um, not knowing when things will end is also mm-hmm. a, a great concern to a lot of people, whether it's club owners and they're concerned about in a space like, like Cameroon speaking here. And I've had this conversation with uh, associates who are working in Ghana, who are working in Kenya. Uh, I, as recently as yesterday, I spoke with a good friend of mine who's out in, in Senegal, and they own a club in Senegal, and his brother is a partner with a club in, in the Ivory Coast. And the challenge for them is wages, the ability to, to pay salaries, um, whether you keep your staff fully paid. Whilst in the UK, we're having conversations about the percentages of wages that players should be uh, given up to support uh, the players have come together and said they want to support the NHS. Uh, not everybody has that liberty, 
mm. like Jeremy Jitab, who's the vice president of Fifth Pro, uh, which is the global uh, union for, for players. Your greatest challenge is the number of players who actually don't even get paid. Mm. A lot of owners have an excuse not to pay you because they maybe needed to receive the little bit of money that came in on a Saturday game, and that's what got spread out to to the talent that you have in this space. The dichotomy between the worlds of football, the haves and the have-nots, it's even more glaring to see. And I think it's an opportunity for us to redefine this new normal, mm-hmm. the ability for people to come in and have a better consideration for, for the human element. There's a player, former Arsenal player, Alexander Song, for example, mm-hmm. who um, had his contract with Sion along I, with... I saw that, Lou. yeah. Nine players, they just had their contracts terminated via WhatsApp uh, because they refused to accept uh, terms that were just imposed on them by their club. And now they're taking the matter up with FIFA. Um, In these moments, there are a lot of other battles going on. For some people, this is a job. It's their livelihood. And then for others, when you also say uh, stay home, social distancing, it's not applicable to all. In places like Cameroon, it's not as as uh there as a um it isn't as blanket and and as as heavy because there's a general desire to understand that people still need to go out and earn that little bit that they can so you will still hear things like uh little area games are still being organized mm-hmm. in the neighborhood they say in the name of fitness but then you'd still hear uh this guy would be paid a little bit something if he comes and joins this neighborhood's team on a Sunday morning game and they play a little 11 aside, but they make a little five ten dollars that they're going to go use to go buy something to take care of their families. And you don't know if it's right for you to tell them that they shouldn't be doing that because they need to just stay at home. Because then they say we stay at home and eat what and drink what. Uh, it's, so it's, it's a balancing game, I think. That's very good insight, um, Francis. Thank you for talking to us about what it means for players right at the bottom of the scale to those at the high end. Ahmed, when we look at Egypt, I mean, these are traditionally some of the best-funded clubs uh, on the continent and, and possibly in the world. How do you expect the coronavirus to impact some of those Egyptian giants? Are they in a financially sound state? It depends It depends kind of how the club is uh you know who the owners, what the, the base of the, the main source of income. If you look at uh, Pyramids FC, for example, who are owned by Turkey or Sheikh in Saudi Arabia, they have you know they've spent more money in the last couple of years than a lot of European clubs um, on on transfers. They've got huge amounts of money. They've just um, signed Ahmed Fatih from Al Ahli, so they're obviously business as normal for them. Um, but then you know if one club in Egypt, my um, Lacoon, have um, asked their players and, and kind of enforced on their players to take a 20% pay cut and the biggest club in Egypt, Al Ahli, are also looking to do the same. Players will be having to take pay cuts, so they will be uh, impacted, but I guess that's for the financial viability of the clubs. Um, Ahli, for example, a lot of the source of the income is through, um, you know, it's, it's not just a football club, it's a whole, um, it's, a, a, it's different in, in terms of in Egypt where you have a, there's a basketball club, there's a swimming club and it's a members club as well member money and obviously sponsorship through the TV rights. Um, Egyptian football up until the start of this year didn't have any fans so they won't be losing a huge amount of revenue from fans coming into the stadiums. Um, so they're, they're experienced, you know, they've been running these clubs without fans 
since the um, Arab Spring in 2011 and the Portside disaster, uh, Portside disaster the following year. Um, both of those instances were also a uh, good insight into how the Egyptian FA dealt with the league. So in, um, with the Arab Spring Revolution, um, the league was only suspended between kind of the start of February till the end of March. It was only a two month period. So they were able to quickly resume the league um, in April um, and it finished in July. Problem was their players weren't able to restart the following league straight away. They kind of they needed that break and that time off. Um, so and then, you know, and so what happened was the league started in October, and then following um, uh, February, Portside disaster happened. You know, they only played 14 games out of the 30. It was already in February. Instead of what they so in the first season, they award you know they finished the season, but this side this time they decided well be too difficult to, to finish the season you know you, you, you'd be pushing on a third season of delay it's a, I don't know whether you know I don't think that will happen because the Egyptian FA have already come out and said um, for example they will be looking they will be looking to finish the season even if it goes into October um, they will be looking to do that um, so they, they want to finish the games and there's a lot of you know money involved in terms of sponsorship TV rights and so they want to do it but in terms of the finances of the clubs themselves they may have to players might take some pay cuts. Let's keep this theme going. I'm going to bring it back to the Premier Soccer League in South Africa. Because if you live anywhere in Africa, you have a DSTV decoder. You're not only going to get fantastic entertainment, you're going to get the best league in Africa, the Premier Soccer League that Courtney played in, on that box. And why are you going to get it on that box? Is not only, well, I sort of, I, I fudged it a little bit by saying it's the best league in Africa. But you're going to get it because DSTV pay a lot of money to um, the PSL in South Africa to show that league. So the South African League is the best funded league when it comes to finances. But Courtney, you and I know that in that South African League, you have Orlando Pirates and you have Kaiser Chiefs, which are commercial juggernauts. And then you have a few vanity projects in the form of Sundowns, who have Patrice Mosepe, a billionaire who backs them. And you also have um, Supersport United, who in a sense are a vanity project of... Um, the uh, sports network that Supersport are, but the other Premier Soccer League clubs, is it fair to say they run as almost like small and medium enterprises? Well, Zane, that is so true, you know, and the four clubs you just mentioned are basically, you could you could actually say that Sundowns, from a financial point of view, are a giant club in the country, which leads the way in terms of progress in CAF, mm -hmm. you know, the one team that is consistently in that competition and goes very far. Mm -hmm. But just coming back to the other clubs, um, as I said to you, I spoke to coaches at Sundowns. I spoke to uh, my uncle who manages at uh, Highlands Park, which is, is a smaller club. Now, they don't have the Zoom activity, for example, mm -hmm. that is happening at the bigger clubs. Mm -hmm. uh, the financial impact on the club is great at the moment. The players have taken cuts other clubs' plays haven't taken cuts at the moment in terms of finances in order to 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 not only fund the plays but to fund everyone within a club. Uh, but the smaller clubs are struggling like every small club is in the world at the moment. Um, and the, the, the difficulty is the, the country is shut down more than anywhere else, mm -hmm. which makes it so difficult for the club in any way to generate funds. They are not run by... The million, the million or billionaire like Motsefe at Sundowns or funded by Supersport 
like Super Sports United. Or, or have a long pedigree like Kaiser Chiefs, which is the most marketable club in the country. They don't have that. Mm-hmm. And they're struggling. And what concerns me, and this is not just in the South African context, this is in Africa all over the world, is the divisions below your premier division, your, your first division. Because some of those leagues don't have sponsors. Some of those leagues rely on the gate takings that come in um, and are funded very differently. And we are facing a potential problem where not just your lower teams and your top divisions are going to have financial issues. It's the impact on the first division, the in- on the second division, and so forth and so forth as we go down that pyramid. So it's going to be interesting to see how national associations and federations can support these clubs and these teams. Otherwise, the, the game could be facing a complete realignment in some of those semi-professional teams and, and low-league professional teams. But to move the discussion from here, I wanted to throw a question out to, to Ahmed and, and Francis. And by all means, Courtney, feel free to get involved in this. But I was speaking to someone who suggested with the African Champions League, what they could do with it to get it done is make the semifinals played as a one-off. The final this year was always going to be played as a one-off. It was the first time CAFED instituted that. And because you have four North African teams, take the tournament to somewhere like Dubai in the UAE. You will get expats, there are lots of North Africans working in that part of the world, who will come and fill a stadium, watch two semifinals, and watch a final, and you can do it all in three days, effectively. Have your semis back-to-back on a Friday, have your final on a Sunday. Um, Ahmed, Francis, feel free to jump in here. What do you think to that suggestion? It could be a commercial money spinner and something that um, takes our product to a different part of the world and a very lucrative part of the world. Sorry, Zane, can I jump in there before? And I, I know you put... Sorry, go for it. When, are you, when was this, and maybe I missed this, when was the period they're looking to do this? When the lockdown ends. When it ends? Yes. Not right now. Not right now. I, I think listening to Ahmed earlier on, I think it'd be a wonderful solution because the key thing he mentioned, there are no fans watching the games at the moment. So take it to a place where people are going to come in drones to watch it. But please, Ahmed, go ahead. Yeah, I think, um, so with some of the Champions League games, Egypt have allowed fans, but it's it's not the full stadium extent and it's not those hardcore ultras. But if you look at the, you know, the Egyptian Super Cup was played out there a couple of months ago and it was between Ali and Zemelik. It was the first time in over 10 years that the biggest rivals had fans in the stadium and obviously caused a lot of trouble. But, it, you know, you know, it, it, it was a great experience and, and, a, and a, there was a great atmosphere in the game. Um, so I don't see why they couldn't do something like that. I think um, playing it in, in, you know, in Dubai or something like that would, would bring in a lot of money as well for the clubs. Um, and I think it's a fair option. But I think from a morality point of view, you'd, you'd have to look at whether... Wouldn't want to play it too, uh, you know, too early, because you know there could be. I think the effect of, of Corona will still be ongoing for a while, and even though the peak might be over for a lot of countries by the end of the summer, and if you do play it all in, you know, and unless people still at home who are struggling and unable to, there could be some issues, the issues there. But I think it, the idea of it does sound good, and I think it could work. It could be a great idea. Francis, from a sports media exec perspective, what's your take on that? I think, uh, particularly when we look at the Maghrebian countries, uh, North Africa, you will never have a challenge in terms of 
numbers at a stadium. Um, that isn't the point, I don't think. Uh, again, if we're talking about the commercialization of a platform exclusively, I think if anything, this moment should be teaching us that the sport needs to be more of a sport and less of a business. Because the only guys who will survive at the end of this crisis will be the businesses that have football as their model of as their modus operandi. Because um, Courtney was mentioning this before, it's no different when you look at the Premier League, it's no different when you look at uh, Ligue 1 in France, it's no different when you look at, at uh, Spanish football. The big clubs will find a way to get through this moment because their pockets are deeper. Um, and so in a, in a sense, it's almost like uh, those who have more get more. Um, when you hear uh, when the idea of delocalizing a, a, a platform like the Champions League or, or, or the finals into a space like Dubai, as a commercial exercise, yeah, understood. But uh, in Egypt, we have just as many uh, billionaires, some owning clubs in the United Kingdom, like the Sariris with Aston Villa. The money is there. What we need is more ownership and the ability to reconnect football with fans. And I think the opportunity that presents itself here is where we enjoy football. If it's using the new mm. media, like we are able to have this today, by connecting each other, but using technology. Are we now at the stage where we begin to say, how do we invest energy and resources into the ability to have a game played by 22 people with officials in a space, um, but it's consumed by 1 billion people who don't necessarily have to come into the stadium mm -hmm. because it was television exclusively, but then the people like Yahoo, uh, people like Netflix are already having conversations around their ability to enter into the sporting arena. Um, it's looking at these ones and beginning to say how we can generate other sorts of income, mm -hmm. how we can wider, widen the, the audience uh, and how people can access a sport that people already love. We have the appetite on, on, on mm -hmm. the continent. We have the platforms in terms of the stadia. Um, the opportunity that presents itself is how we can build on that and carry our sports into other spaces. So the moment that presents itself is if like what the Burundians are doing, continuing their league or well, until they stopped last week, what should have been happening is the ability to say, whilst six, seven billion people are hungering for football elsewhere and they don't have it, how do you provide a proposition that can be consumed by maybe one billion of these people elsewhere? I think that's how houses like CAF need to be thinking now, that if we don't have the crisis as deep, and how do we get our leagues, our games, watched by as many people off our shores as possible? Mm. Just using technology, not by physical relocation. I think, I think that's one thing maybe CAF lacks a bit behind. If you look at Belarus, for example, that week yes. they announced that they were um, going to be playing their football. They signed television deals in Russia, Israel, all around the world, yes. Canada, because they knew that everyone wants to watch football yes. where they could watch it. Um, and I think... Yeah, Africa as a whole has to think about that. If we are able to yeah. start even, early, we should look. The, the, the guys in Taiwan did the same thing with the launch of, of the, the league over there. Swedish, Swedish broadcasters wanted to show um, the Nicaraguan Premier League. Sport is going to bring in funds. Eh? Live sport will bring mm -hmm. in. And if this is an opportunity to start 
assisting those clubs below the heavy tier by doing that yeah. then i say go ahead with it because uh, you know the big hitters are easily manageable at the moment they can look after themselves as you as you also echoed that um ahmed it's about the other clubs and it's not just about the players it's also about the the kid the groundsman absolutely everyone in the club needs to be looked after at this time so the extra needs to be done so that people are still uh, are able to go about their lives i think a lot of um, do forget about the non, you know, the non-playing staff, and yeah. from a financial perspective, they point a lot more of them. And I mean, I, I looked at, for example, the annual reports of, of Tottenham as an example. But everyone was saying, "Oh, the players they make all the money." It's actually a fifty-fifty split. And there's less players in terms of there's you know twenty players, but there's a lot of staff that, that we don't see or we don't. You know, there are over five hundred members of staff, and so you have to look at everyone. And I think. Even if players do take a cut, that might not be enough. And some some clubs, you know, some of the smaller clubs, even you know, if they take a players take twenty percent pay cut, that won't pay for the rest of the paying staff's wages. So um, they they could be in trouble there. Guys, we're fast running out of time, but I'd just like to go around the houses one more time, just with your take on who the biggest winners and losers are out from this. Is it the players? Is it the fans? Is it the broadcasters? Is it high flying agents? Um, is it you and I, podcasters sitting here, who are the who are the people who've probably taken a hit the most? Courts, maybe we'll start with you. I, Zane, I, I to be honest, thought about this because you asked us this question in the week as well. Who are the biggest winners and losers? And um, I think everyone's losing at the moment in mm-hmm. some element, way or form. Everybody is um, losing, but also. We are also winning in other ways. Like I, I'll just give a very small example. I've not spent as much time with my family during this period than I've ever. I've never been around so much, mm. which has given me uh, the time I have never had uh, to appreciate with my family. And I think, yes, in this devastation, a lot of other people are getting that opportunity. But the biggest losers from a sport point of view is the fans. We're just not getting to see the live sport that, let's be honest, plays a huge role in our lives. Um, the losers are the people who work for these companies who are not getting paid. Mm-hmm. Ahmed? Yeah, I mean, I'd echo kind of pretty much what Courtney said there. It's the fans are the biggest losers. Um, they're not seeing live football. Yeah, every, every weekend you'd be looking forward to watching a game. Um, the Olympics was coming up. You're, there's a lot of different. You know, that was what we kind of strive for. Um, definitely the biggest kind of lose in terms of from an enjoyment perspective. Um, but then they're, they're the player. But the other side of it is that the players also will be big time losers because for them, you've got to think about the mental uncertainty of they don't know whether they're going to get paid and, and they might be going through certain tough times. Um, I guess Courtney even mentioned at the start how. It has changed how clubs are viewing players, and, and they're not just seeing them as someone who goes out and plays and trains and comes back. They're looking at them from a personal point of view, checking on them mentally. Um, so there are some small wins, but overall, I think quite you know there's quite a big, you know, a lot of losses, and we may lose some some of the smaller clubs. Final word to Francis. Well, it's it's a it's a tough one. Um, I think at present, uh, speaking from the vantage point of, of an African lover of the game. 
Our greatest loss at present to date is the loss of Pabjuf. Um, this was an individual who this particular disease is taken from us. And if we study his parkour in the game and what it is that he contributed as an individual from mm. his time as a journalist in Marseille to becoming the very first African to be chairman, chief exec of, of a club mm. in, in French League One in, in Olympique de Marseille. Mm. What he did, his punditry, his contribution, even through affiliations with FIFA and CAF and mm -hmm. who he was and what he represented to the game. This for me is the greatest loss because it's a human life. In that story, I believe the greatest gain from it is our comprehension of our shared humanity. Because I think even if we have financial loss, even if the paradigm that defines our game is shaken to its very core, what will be left would be an ability for us to see that we are human beings and our relationships with each other is most important. And that's why I like, you know, we had created this Best of Africa platform, which mm. was about looking at players and saying, but don't look at them as just footballers, look at them as human beings and look at the things that they do. And so from the actions that young men like Basogov are doing now with raising mm. money to help uh, people in China, from things that Drug was doing with handing over his hospital to help uh, with cases in Ivory Coast, uh, even Danny Welbeck sending kits back to Ghana with things that Rashford is doing, with what the players are doing in the United Kingdom, things that Zaha is doing in the Ivory Coast, things that Adebayor is doing in Togo. People again are able to connect with these players on a human level. They share what they have. And if we focus less on the Ferraris and we focus less on the mansions and rich ladies in the house and how size, what size her clothes are or whatever it is, and we understand that to a vast majority of these young men who play the game, mm. what they earn, they share. And they're always happy. To. I think that enriches our humanity because then we realize that even when we share our one pound and they share their one million pounds, we all share. <laughs> So yeah. from Corona, we're learning that we are a shared humanity. There are mm -hmm. no real borders. Whether you carry a different passport or you live in a different neighborhood, if this baby is going to hit you, it's going to hit you. But I think it's now then for us to create that practical side of it, how we can use our sport, this football, to hammer home this message about our shared humanity. I think it's a beautiful opportunity. Amen. So well said. So well said, Francis. And from my perspective, I agree with everyone. Your points are all valid and all right, and there's no right or wrong over winners and losers. Um, from my perspective, as much as fans are losers and players, I think of in South Africa when I used to report on the PSL, and it was the gig economy, the people who used to work on that Friday night or that Saturday, and you're walking into the stadium and you're either looking forward to that shisenyama, which is like a braai or barbecued piece of meat, or a mealy, which uh, translated to an international piece of corn. And these people who rely on that income and the cool drink that they sell and the scarves and the flags, if you extend it to other parts of, of Africa and the world, those are the people who I feel the most sorry for uh, in this, is the people who are so integral to the clubs, but they're not involved in the clubs as staffers, but they might as well be because your fan and your match day experience 
is built around those traditions and going to those people who you develop connections with. And they've got the best Borovort roll and the best steak or the best cool drink or the best conversation. So I feel the most for those. And where I see this as an opportunity is like everyone on this podcast. This is an opportunity for all of us to think differently going forward in the new world that we'll live in. To take lessons about family, about innovation, and about thinking about sustainable models of how we can run our businesses, our families, and our football teams. And I think we're all going to come out of this, and I don't say this glibly, stronger and smarter. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Very true. It's a reset button. Thank you. Thank you so much. Francis and Quain, sports media executive, PSL legend from Manning Rangers, Courtney Fries, looking a little heavier after his 23-minute run. Beast from the East, Ahmed Yusuf. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate all your time. Stay safe, stay healthy. Keep washing your hands. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot.